Welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy, my co-host, with me today. How are you doing, Darcy? Uh, um, I'm a little hungover, not gonna lie. Uh, I'm in Birmingham, and my friends and I hung out last night and drank a lot of whiskey and had a lot of fun, but... Um, a little bit older, so I don't recover <laughs> as quickly as I used now to. Now you're having to deal with the consequences. Yeah. <laughs> <of that. laughs> Extra special evening you had. Right. Well, good thing you've got this podcast to look forward <laughs> to. <laughs> we like to talk about all the strange stuff, crazy cases, and things that make you say, hmm, that was very fascinating. In other words, if it's weird, wild, bizarre, and provocative, we're going to talk about it on this podcast. Today we've got an interesting case to talk about. I know that in the past we've made it perfectly clear that Darcy loves any cases that have to do with strangulation, right? Yeah, I like talking about neck injuries. <laughs> okay, what, what, explain to me why you like this so much, why this topic is like in your wheelhouse and why you enjoy talking about it so much. I don't know why specifically neck injuries um, drew me in. But it's something I started studying during my PhD process, and I what I want to go into when I finish my PhD is forensic biomechanics, where I study blunt force trauma, and my kind of dissertation work right now is neck injuries due to blunt force trauma to the head. So I'm just really, I'm reading a lot of research on it right now, and so I'm just really fascinated when I get to use that research to talk about the other thing I love, which is true crime. Which is murder. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Okay, well, we've got another strangulation-type case today, do we not? We do. And a blunt force trauma case, actually. Right? This is a very, very interesting case to me because there are some side issues. Not so much legal precedence issues, although there is one particular aspect of this case that plays in that comes into play that is not a common thing and that it was sort of a first use of this particular thing. And we're going to get into that in a second. But this case has some moral and social issues to me. But we're going to talk about the case of Nicole Vander Hayden or Vander Hayden, however you choose to say it, um, depending on where you're from in the country. But this case happened not too long ago. This was back in 2016. But on May 20th, 2016, Nicole Vander Hayden and her boyfriend, Douglas Dietrich, I believe they were engaged, mm -hmm. um, as well as some of their friends, attended a Steel Panther concert at a bar called The Watering Hole in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, the two of them had the one child together, and she had children from a previous relationship. So they kind of had a mixed and blended family together, and, I, and they lived together as well. They met sort of spontaneously in the Green Bay, Wisconsin area and sort of hit it off really quickly and decided they wanted to blend their families and create a new family together. By the way, just for the sake of not plagiarizing, I took this from an article called Babe in the Woods and Big Country, the Murder of Nicole Vanderheiden. This came out March 9th, 2018, and it's by Leslie Lazily or LaSalle. Lise LaSalle, I believe is her name. I, I apologize if I mispronounced your name, author of this article, but it was a very, very good author, or very good article. 
So in any case, in about early, excuse me, in end of May was when this event actually happened. And this is Green Bay, Wisconsin. So you know that that shit was just starting to warm up into the spring weather, but it was probably still pretty cold mm-hmm. in the evening in that particular area. But by all accounts from the people that were there with them, they had probably five or six friends, possibly more than that, with them attending this concert. It's my understanding that the majority of those friends were Doug's friends and not necessarily Nikki's friends, but in lieu of the fact that they were in a relationship together, they were considered their friends. Right. So... They seemed to be enjoying the concert. They took a selfie that looked like they're smiling and having a really good time. They were recent parents of a six-month-old boy named Dylan, and they were really, really enjoying the thought of this night out on the town. Yeah, this was probably, like, one of their first nights out. Yeah. From what I understand, she was still breastfeeding as well. So anytime you've got a baby, You've got a lot of action, a lot of activity going on. She had other kids as well. So, like, a night out was probably something she really wanted and was really looking forward to. They got Nikki's mm-hmm. mother to babysit until a friend named Dallas Kennedy could take over the care of their baby at the end of the mother shift so the mother could go home and then the friend Dallas could take care of the baby at that point. Their friend Greg had convinced Doug to join them by insisting that Nikki would appreciate the entertainment since she had been in the house mainly since giving birth to their child. So the friend of mm-hmm. Doug's was like, hey, you know, you've got to get this lady out of the house. She deserves it. She needs a little away time from those kids. Um, the two other children that she had from a previous relationship were with their dad. So their the kids were taken care of. They're head, they headed out. They arrived at the watering hole around 8 p.m. that night. And at that point, it's no surprise that both of them began drinking very heavily. She probably was maybe a little bit more susceptible to the effects of it because of, you know, the nature of breastfeeding and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. She probably had a little bit of a lower tolerance. But the co- and she presumably hadn't been drinking for her, her pregnancy, right. too. So she probably yeah. had a little bit of less of a tolerance than Doug. But she evidently, according to everyone that was along with that group, was drinking very heavily. The concert- Did you say how old they are? She was 31, and I think he okay. was older than her. I don't see an age for him in this particular article. Just give me one second. Let me find out. I think he was, like, in his late 30s. Okay. Okay. 35. Okay. He's 35. So Douglas, or was her boyfriend was four years older than her. They arrived at the watering hole around 8 and started drinking very heavily. The concert itself ended around 11 p.m. that night. And that's when things started to kind of go a little bit out of control for, a little, for Miss Nikki. Mathau, Greg, Doug's friend, and Doug met up with some old friends from high school, and somehow they got separated from Nicole and the rest of the group, which was mostly Doug's friends. When the larger group decided to go to the sardine can, Doug and Greg were not in the immediate area. I'm sure they probably had gone off to get some shots or go to the bathroom or whatever. You know how it is when you're in like a bar or a concert and there's like mm-hmm. a big, huge group of people and it's really easy to get separated and there's a lot of other people around and it's hard to like locate a single person sometimes. That's sort of what yeah. happened. There was a little bit of alcohol involved, obviously, or a lot of bit of alcohol, so it makes it a little disorienting as well. But the larger group decided to go to the sardine can 
and they said, hey, we're just going to take off because we can't find Doug and Greg. We're just going to let them meet us there later. So at that point, there's some massive texting going on between Nikki and Doug. Nikki made it very, very clear that she was not happy that she could not find Doug. He was not answering her texts or phone calls. She realized that Doug had stayed at the watering hole and was not in a hurry to join them and started texting him. Mm. So that around 11 o'clock that night, Doug started getting some really, really pissed off texts. She basically says, quote, so what bitch you with? Quote, fuck oh, you, my. abusive asshole. Quote, wow, what slut are you with? Because none of your friends know. So she clearly was really, really upset and was very accusatory of him. And I'm not sure if they had had relationship problems with infidelity in the past, but it sounds like, I mean, that's not something you would necessarily bust out with unless there'd been some issues with that sort of a thing earlier in your relationship. Don't you think? Yeah, either that or it's just one of those things that maybe she, when she gets drunk, she well, gets angry and belligerent angry or paranoid <laughs> or insecure, you know, and maybe that's what it was. I don't know. That's, that seems like a, a very big escalation, and though. Clearly, you know, she was more than a little bit drunk and she just had a baby not too long ago. So I'm sure there was a little bit of insecurity mm -hmm. on her part because we all know that when you have a baby, sometimes you gain a little bit of weight. And I'm sure she felt insecure at that point. And then given that he's taking off and not responding to her attacks, that probably created a whole level of paranoid anxiety in her that was just above what the normal would be. Right. Doug, on the other hand, doesn't seem to understand at all during any of this why his girl is so upset and is basically answering her with texts like, LOL, stop and be good. I'll see you at the sardine can. So like he's sort of putting everything she says off and not <laughs> not making a big deal out of any of it, laughing it he's off and moving on. He's basically telling her to calm down, which is like the worst thing you can say when somebody's pissed off. Like that just makes you so much more mad if somebody tells you to calm down or laughs at your anger. Yeah. And then if you're drunk, you're just like, you know, right. Fuck and she's you. trying to call him and text him and he's not being responsive. And it just seems shady. Mm -hmm. um, Doug, on the other hand, was just like, whatever, I'm having a good time. I'm catching up with people. I'm drinking, blah, blah, blah. He said later that he lost track of time and Doug and Greg, his friend, decided that they were so drunk at one point that they snorted some of Doug's Adderall to try to get themselves oh. like a little bit of a, a pick-me-up since they had had a little too much to drink. Was it his prescribed Adderall? It said or he just, was Doug's he just prescription speed? for Adderall. Okay. <laughs> so they're like drinking. They're doing lines of Adderall, which I didn't even know was a fucking thing. Did you know that was a thing? Snorting yeah. Adderall? So that's like a high? Is yeah, it like I've heard doing of it. cocaine? Like what, what is it supposed to do? I mean, it's, it, it, well, it's, it's speed. So it's, it is, I mean, it's, it's an amphetamine, um, but, and snorting, it's just a faster way to get it into your bloodstream than just taking it. So yikes. at some point in this, it came out later that Doug and Nikki's relationship had hit a few rough patches and it was alleged that Doug had as well, a difficult time kind of adapting to the two children and a new baby as 
I don't think that's completely unrealistic for a man that doesn't have any children right. who's all of a sudden thrown into a situation with two kids that aren't his own and a new baby. I mean, that's got to be stressful. Not that I'm saying that's any justification yeah. for anyone to do something shitty or ignore their girlfriend or kill somebody. That Not at all. But I can see that there, would, there was probably a little bit of stress and tension in that household. Nicole wasn't... Yeah, it's an adjustment. She's probably feeling a little bit neglected. And then to have her boyfriend, who's supposed to be, like, you know, her loving the man of her dreams, like, suddenly disappear and not respond to her was probably very challenging as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the group goes back to the sardine can. The girls are on the dance floor um, drinking, dancing. The guys are all drinking as well. Everyone seems to be enjoying themselves, but Nikki kind of put herself to the side, wasn't really enjoying herself, was getting more and more upset about Doug not showing up. So what she had yeah. one of the other girls in the group call Doug from her own phone and he answered the call. Oh, that's right. annoying. So he's like deliberately not answering right. Nicole's phone calls and then answers some random girl call. in this group. So this, that's a good way right, to get this in a fight. literally like pisses Nikki off to the point where she's like, okay, I'm fucking done. I can't handle this anymore. Right. Um, and then the girl called Doug a loser on top of everything else in front of the whole group, which I'm sure was a little bit embarrassing for Nikki as well. So at that point, Nikki sprints out of the bar, super upset and runs into the street as a group is. Standing, kind of milling around, getting ready to call an Uber. A couple of people within the group go after Nikki and try to convince her to join them. They caught up with her not too far from the bar. She was crying and they tried to comfort her by offering to take her home to be with her child. But Nikki kept pushing the people away who were trying to help her. And she was like, she would not calm down. She ended up falling down on the ground, kicking and screaming at the top of her lungs. So the people that were hmm. in this group of mainly Doug's friends were just like, hey, you know, this girl is like, she's extra right now and we can't handle it. So yeah, because she was also screaming and freaking out and people started looking in their direction, they were like, okay, we got to leave her because she's making it clear that this could be a situation where we could be accused of assaulting her or whatever the case may be. People are looking at us strangely. Right. So she got back up on her feet and kept walking away. They started yelling after her, but she was like, hey, I'm done. And this one particular gentleman in the group named Aaron yelled out, we can get you home faster to your kid as they're like kind of driving beside her and then called her a babe in the woods. At this point, Nicole would not listen or turn around. When they last saw her, she was on her cell phone. So the friends basically said, hey, we got an Uber at that point. We got into the Uber. We did our best. There's nothing we can do. She's on her phone. She's out there. We're going to leave her. She clearly didn't want to come with us. Right. And she's belligerent, basically. This to me is, I mean, talk to me a little bit about this. If you're with a group of friends and one member of the group gets like that, what do you do? In my mind, you never, ever, ever, ever leave somebody in the group by themselves. That was something we were always taught when we were growing up. You go together, you come back together, you do not leave a member of the group on their own. To me, that seems like common sense. It does seem like common sense, and it's the right thing to do, but realistically, 
I think it's very hard to do that in practice when you have somebody that refuses to get in the car with you, refuses to let you talk to them, doesn't want anything to do with you, wants to walk away, is actively walking away, causing a scene. I, I mean, I, I don't like the idea of leaving anybody when they're that drunk, but at the same time, what can you do other than physically restrain somebody? You know what I mean? Like, hey, if you fucking gotta restrain them, real, restrain them. Realistically, like if you've ever been around a, a friend like who has gets like that when they're drunk and also you've been drinking all night too you're not in the mood to deal with it well somebody should have like like after a while you're just like fuck it be on your own if you want to walk down the street that's what you want that's on you we've tried everything we can like i feel like that's just like friendship 101 like you don't fucking leave people especially a woman a young woman no, I agree with you, but realistically, like, what would you have done in that situation? Would you have just kept yeah. following her in the no, Uber? I would have gotten out of the Uber and walked behind her. Fuck that. I just don't think that, yeah, that okay. it's right what they did, leaving her. I don't care if she's drunk and belligerent. I mean, I like, I agree with you. I don't, it's not right. It's not safe. I just, it, like, I've just been in those situations and in, like, practicality it like it, it doesn't make it's it's really difficult to not leave somebody alone that wants or to be give left her alone her own fucking Uber. it just like, i mean it I just, just is. Feel like there's so many other things they could have done to avoid this situation but anyway um at that point nikki was wandering the streets pretty drunk doug and greg were still doing shots at the watering hole and at about 12 See, now maybe that's what I would have done is I would have called Doug and been like, your girlfriend is walking down the street and she's hammered. She won't let anybody get her car for her. Like, maybe that's what yeah. I would have done. But I, like, I just, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's, such, it's, it's hard because also like Green Bay is a small town. It's not like you it, it, are expecting anything terrible right. to happen. You but know still, what I mean? That's a shitty boyfriend right there. I'm sorry. It is a shitty boyfriend to do. It's, it's a super shitty boyfriend. So around 12, yeah. th- 12.20 a.m., the two drunk idiots who are still doing shots at the watering hole decided it's time to go, and they headed in the direction of the sardine can, where the rest of the group allegedly was at that point. Doug called Nikki and said she was slurring her words and not making any sense at all, so he let his friend talk to her. That was about 12.36 in the morning. He told her to go back to the... That doesn't really make any sense. Like, I can't understand her. You talk right? to her. You're her boyfriend. You just had a kid with her. So he basically conveys to her that he wants her to go back to the sardine can and that they're going to be there in five minutes. Doug was telling her, we're mm-hmm. on our way. Just go back to the sardine can. We'll be back in five minutes. Where are you? We'll pick you up. So hopefully mm-hmm. they weren't driving. I cringe when I think of this on all the alcohol and the freaking Adderall. But then Nikki's phone died. So at that point, the group is driving around the bar to see if they can spot her. Two friends of the group entered the sardine can around one in the morning and checked to see if anyone had seen Nicole. In one of her texts, she had told Doug that she'd encountered a friend, so he thought she was fine and probably at somebody else's place sobering up. So the group has more drinks at the sardine can... I mean, by that point, they've got to be so fucking trashed. But they left around 2.15 yeah. a.m. to go back to Doug's house, where Doug and Nikki allegedly live at that point. 
So, sorry, I just want to go back. So, so the, one of the last texts that she sent was that she had met a friend. And so Doug assumes that she's at this friend's house. Yes. Yes. Right? So he, instead of going home to the six-month-old baby, he stays out yeah. drinking. And in this instance, Got I don't it. even know if it was the last text. It just says, in one of her texts. So, oh, like, at some okay. point, he had heard her say, I met up with a friend. I'm going to go do something else. And he just assumed that's where she was. Like, don't verify. Don't check. Don't make sure. Just assume that. I mean, and, and I don't think. Don't go home to your right. baby. So. At some point, like, if you can't find the other parent, go home. But in the meantime, he's basically annoying the bartender and calling Nikki stupid for doing all this. Yeah, that's not great. So they're in this fight. He's like, "This is ridiculous. This is so stupid. I can't believe I have to deal with this." Like, really, you're her fucking boyfriend. You signed up for this, anyway. Um, right. At that point, no one from that group ever heard from Nikki again. Greg drives Doug home so they could relieve Dallas, who was the friend of Nikki, who had been babysitting the baby. When they came home at about 2.40 a.m., Dallas woke up but was surprised not to see Nikki because she didn't really know Doug that well. She wasn't friends with Doug. She was friends Mm -hmm. with Nikki. And he was entering the home with a very loud friend where the baby was sleeping, and she's like, this is just kind of fucking weird. Um, Made sort of Dallas feel awkward, and it kind of led her to believe that the relationship was shaky, and she was not a fan of Doug. She was like, okay, this guy's a douchebag because... Yeah, I'm not a fan of Doug either. And you're here, and you're being loud and obnoxious. Where's your girl? She said she wanted to leave right away, but Doug was like, I don't know where Nikki is. And then she kind of jokingly asked him if if Nikki was in the the trunk of the car. (laughs) And he was like, oh, no. That's not a great joke. Like, as, as somebody who makes bad jokes, of course you don't think anything bad actually happened to your friend, but, like... Not a great time for that joke. Yeah. So I think Dallas's testimony was sort of conflicted in certain points because she would say Doug was concerned and kept asking her to try to contact Nikki, but would also throw a bomb in saying that he locked the door at when she left at about 3 a.m. And not really caring hmm. what happened to her. So he was kind of going back and forth between, hey, what's going on with my girl? Have you heard from her? Can you try contacting her? To, I don't know what the fuck is going on. I'm just going to go ahead and lock the door and go to bed. Now, were either of them in contact with Dallas throughout the night? Dallas was there until about 3 a.m., and then that was it. They didn't really talk to her anymore. But they didn't, like, text her during the time she was babysitting or no. anything to check in? Okay. Doug, who did not have her phone number, contacted her, Dallas, on Facebook to inquire more about Nikki at a later time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's interesting is during this whole time, he asked her for some pot. Yeah. Jesus He's Christ. He's like, I need to, like, mellow out. Do you have any pot to smoke? And she, of course, did and let him have some. Um... And evidently, you know, before she left, he was like, hey, Dallas, can I hit that one more time? I just kind of got a creepy feeling like he was almost like hitting on Dallas a little bit before she left. Hmm. You know, this girl's not there. This other woman just happens to be. He's slightly inebriated. Like, it just sort of felt like he was kind of hitting on this girl. 
she was uh, like he was making yeah. her uncomfortable. Which just sort of creep gave the whole yeah. creepy vibe about all of this. But after right. Dallas left around three in the morning, Doug went to bed. The baby woke up around six thirty in the morning, and he already had a bottle ready from breast milk that Nicole had pumped earlier. And so he fed the baby and went back to sleep, and then got up at eleven a.m. No idea where your girlfriend is. No attempts to contact her during any of that time. Just like takes care of the baby and go back goes back to bed. Sorry, I just thought about this. Can we go back to the joke? Like, I know you're not thinking it's late and you're tired, but, like, what would she have done if he was, like, yes? Like, what? You, that's not, you don't want to know the answer to that question because now you're in the house alone with somebody who has his girlfriend's Pretty body much. in the trunk, if that's Pretty actually much. true. Yeah. You know what I mean? Super creepy. Anyways. Um, wasn't Green Bay on. also where Ed Gein was from? Wisconsin? Uh, no, I don't think so. Milwaukee was Dahmer. Um, Ed Gein was from, like, rural Wisconsin, but I don't think it was Green Bay. We can look it up. (laughs) Oh, he's from La Crosse. But he's still Wisconsin. I mean, come on. You still have that same Wisconsin accent. Wisconsin. Um, (laughs) anyway... Doug was still at that point under the impression that Nikki was like, hey, I'm just going to hang at my friend's place because, you know, I'm breastfeeding and I've, my breast milk is probably popping out all over the place. But, hey, what the fuck? I'm just going to go ahead and stay out of my friend's place because I'm still pissed at you. Just fucking stupid. Right. And he was like, oh, she's going to show up eventually. So no big deal. So he kept messaging everyone that may potentially know where she was, asking for news, posted, step, posted a Snapchat of the baby to see if she would open it, etc. The group started to grow more Mm -hmm. and more concerned at that point because they were checking hospitals, local jails, and no one could find Nikki. So they ended up... And is this just the the next next day? day? So they end up filing a missing persons report at about 4.30 p.m. the following day, which would be May 21st, I believe. Yeah, May 21st. So they follow the missing persons report. They file the missing persons report at that time. Okay. In the meantime, on Hoffman Road, which is not too far from this location of the, the home that Nikki and Doug live in, the dead nude body of a female has been found by Richard Vandehey and two teen boys who are picking up rocks in a farm field. So essentially these... His name is Vandehey? Yeah, Vandehey. And her yeah. name is Vander Hayden. Isn't that weird? Weird little coincidence. Hmm. But anyway, these kids get out there in the field and are, like, picking up rocks and working out in the field, and they stumble across this, what they initially probably think is a mannequin, just like every other instance, and they find the nude dead body. So they call 911. No, it's it's never never a fucking mannequin. They call 911 at around 1.54 p.m. on the 21st. So they found her body pretty quick. Deputies then arrived at Doug's house after 5 p.m., on Ber- Berkeley Road, which is a quiet residential area considered safe and friendly by all the neighbors and everyone else who lives in that area. The house belonged to Doug, whose family had a development company. Um, in the meantime, Doug's parents and Vander Hayden's family were there with Doug, just trying to be supportive, trying to figure out what happened to this poor girl. The, dis- the sergeant assigned to the case described Dietrich as pale and hungover at that time, 
but they did a full inspection of him and noticed that there were not any scratches, marks, or bruises on Doug, his body, his hands, or arms, or face, which is something that I believe police investigate when somebody is a possible suspect. They want to see if there are scratches, because typically the victim will fight back, and there'll be some scratches or some bruises or something Mm -hmm. of that nature on the person who attacked them. But in any case, Mm -hmm. Doug did not have any scratches or marks on his arms or hands, and he was wearing a Fitbit on his wrist. So keep that in the back of your mind. This is not a typical missing persons report. I know that there had been the ability for this to be something more, the police officer said at that time. At that Mm -hmm. time as well, Doug was not told that the body of a female was found in a field that bore similarities to Nikki because they were kind of hoping they could get something from him. They didn't want to spill the beans yet. So they found her or they found a body at about, you Uh said like 1, 1 1.30? In a a field. And then at 4.30 that same day is when they filed the missing persons report. Okay. And please come out to his house to kind of give, uh, to have a conversation with him. And he just thinks it's because they filed this missing persons report. He doesn't know that there's this body involved. Right. So the police officer sits with Doug in the kitchen and secretly records the conversation using a key fob camera. During this time, Doug was very cooperative and volunteered his phone for the forensics team to look through. She even asked him why Nikki called him an abusive asshole in the text message. And Doug said she gets that way sometimes if she's drinking or gets something in her head. So he kind of played it off and was like, hmm. you know, it's not that big of a deal. Whereas the police are like, she said abusive. Are you abusive? Because that typically is one right. of the precursors to a, an act of domestic violence. And him saying she gets that way when she's drunk or has something in her head is like a very passive thing to say. Like, it's like yes. it's all on her. So after the police yeah. leave, after taking the statements of the individuals there... They got a text mentioning that a body had been found in Bellevue and all the family members started feeling really, really anxious. At around midnight, cops asked Doug to go to the sheriff's office and he complies. At that point, he denied any kind of involvement in Nikki's disappearance and gave them full permission to search his home. So he's like, he's not hiding anything. He's like, you know, inspect my body, look at the house, look at my car, here's Mm -hmm. my phone. Like, I'm not, you know, he's not being resistant. He's not acting shady. With the exception of being slightly, I think, less concerned, I think, than one would think a spouse of a missing person would be. He just, he wasn't. And somebody that just had a baby with somebody else. So. The sheriff's yeah. office said that the body they found wore a pink wristband like the ones given at the water hole. So, you know, those those little paper wristbands they give you to go into bars. She had one yeah. of those on. And at that point, Dietrich, Doug, her boyfriend, started crying and sobbing and hyperventilating when they told oh. them that they found the body. And he later said that this pretty much confirmed that it was Nikki. He'd been trying to hold out hope until that point. His parents came and picked him up at the police office around 3 or 4 a.m. to go back to the house. And at that point, Doug realizes, holy fuck, the cops think I killed her. Right. Yeah. Obviously. Because this is, again, uh, that story of we got in a fight and she took off. So he was... I mean, that's what the story comes down to. He talks to the family lawyer at that point and refuses to give a DNA sample and just waits for the warrant. But he is arrested later while at his parents' house on suspicion of first-degree intentional homicide of Nikki, and he is held for 18 days while they investigate. 
So at this point, so I have a question for you. Um, If in that situation, like obviously I am a big proponent of not doing anything until you talk to a lawyer, would you give that DNA sample prior to the warrant or would you say to not give that DNA sample? Well, if you didn't fucking do it, then give the DNA sample. When you say I'm not going to give the DNA sample, that says to me you had something to do with it. It's just shady. Okay. It's shady, but the attorney advised him not to. So. Right. Um, a little bit of background before, because I'm going to let Darcy kind of dig into the, the stuff after the death of Nikki, but essentially Doug and Nikki had known each other since January 2015, so they hadn't known each other that long. This happened in t- May 2016. Um, so they'd really only been together yes. a year. So a few weeks after they started dating, Nikki had gotten pregnant. So she had filed a paternity suit naming Dietrich as the father of her child. Nikki had two kids from a previous relationship and shared custody with her former husband. So she'd been married before. Doug and Nikki Nikki moved into Doug's house. His parents' professional activities involved business development and he'd been working with his parents' company. And by all accounts, he had a little bit of money from what I understand. Um, most of the people that knew them described them as a good couple, but they did have some problems in May, shortly before this whole thing went down, Doug told his mom, he was not cut out for being a family man and was thinking of kicking Nicole and the kids out. Oh, so Nikki, additionally, Nikki's friends and family were pretty much not too enchanted with Doug as well because it seemed like he preferred sleeping in instead of going to work and appeared to miss his bachelor life. Oh my. So there's a lot of text as well going back and forth between Nikki and Doug where she's saying some really kind of awful things and it appears that he was a little bit insensitive at times. And they traded a lot of Yeah. I mean, I think that's they traded a putting lot of it lightly. Text. So, so he, I mean, he was verbally abusive then. It could be construed in that way. So, right. Um, obviously this was a very big lifestyle change for Doug and he was having trouble dealing with it, but does that make him a murderer? So let's get into, let's dive into the, the, the body a little bit. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? So this information is coming from the Green Bay Gazette. There's two articles that I that I have that talk about the injuries that Nicole sustained during her murder. The deputy medical examiner in Green Bay said that there were two causes of death, strangulation and blunt force trauma to the head, but it was not possible to tell which injuries came first. So, so wait. Let's take a step back. So they found her nude body. Yes. She's wearing socks, though. She was wearing, I think, maybe one sock and that wristband, and that was it. That's crazy. Why would you take off everything except the socks? It, I don't know. It could have been, I don't know. So strangulation and blunt force trauma. And blunt force trauma to the head, yeah. But while the medical examiner couldn't determine which came first, Both injuries were significant enough to cause death by themselves. So either one could have been the actual cause of death. 
Okay. So, which is why they were listed as two. So what happens is in a perimortem, which is around the time of death, a perimortem injury, which means either right before or right after, but you can't tell the difference, um, is there's blood that kind of pools at the injury site. And this happens only when there's still circulation, right? So once the heart stops beating and pumping blood throughout the body, there's going to be no more pooling at the injury site, which is how you can tell an injury is postmortem. But if it occurs okay. around the same time of death, then you're still going to have that pooling, and you can't say if it occurred before or right after. Okay. So that's why they, they couldn't tell if the blunt force trauma was the cause of death or the strangulation. Got it. Her body was covered in bruises, most significantly on her arms, legs, and back. And again, these are also perimortem. So some of them happened before, and then there were some that they could, they could determine that happened after. Damn. And the injuries to Nicole's head were so severe, they caused major hemorrhaging. The blood pooled around the wounds, which indicates she was alive for some time during the beating. So during, at some point, it wasn't just one blow to her head that caused the death. It would have been multiple blows. And she obviously was alive for at least some of that. It's my understanding that there were 240 separate injuries Yes, I think it was 241, yeah. Facial injuries, a fractured jaw, injuries to the genital area, suggestive of sexual mm-hmm. assault, strangulation marks, and blunt force trauma, along and, with bruises all And that's over interesting body. because I've also seen the thing about um, injuries to the, to the genital area, and what I read said that they couldn't tell if it was assault or consensual sex right before she died, which is right. actually going to become part of the defense. She so, had some sort of sex before she right. died or around the time that right. she died. Right. The, uh, mm, blah, blah, oh, blah. also I saw that there was, she was hit with a blunt object, which left irregular shapes and a repetitive yeah. zigzag pattern. That was so, what I was about to say. Interesting. So bruising and contusions also suggested that she may have been assaulted sexually. And initially Douglas Dietrich, Dietrich, the boyfriend, was arrested because there was blood found outside the home. And he was held on $1 million cash bond. We will. So he was held on a $1 million cash bond for 17 days. But he was released after officials determined that there was insufficient evidence to tie him to the crime. Hmm. So... Basically, they, you know, of course, it's the boyfriend. It's always the boyfriend. They got drunk. They had a fight. She supposedly ran off, which we've already said on our show that never happens. Or does it? Because I mean, usually the boyfriend's involved when that happens. When he, when they say she took off, usually the boyfriend killed. Yeah, her, or the husband. Usually, they never left the house, and the partner killed killed the other person. So, Green Bay police were actually investigating a man named George S. Birch for possible involvement in an unrelated hit-and-run crash. And when they were looking him up in this investigation, they found that he had made several internet searches on his phone regarding the murder of Nicole Vander Hayden. So according to a criminal complaint, Cell phone records also showed that Birch had traveled from his home on Greenwood Avenue to a bar on South Broadway 
and then to Vander Hayden's home on the night of her death. Phone location records also place Birch at the farm field where Vander Hayden's body was also found. And so it's not looking too good. His phone right. is pinging off all the same areas where Nicole's was. Right. So. And is that they the point? Arrest, so they had ar- they'd already released Doug and said he wasn't a suspect anymore? Yeah, they or, had already released him. And they, well, they said that they didn't have sufficient evidence to charge him at that time. Well, I so believe I that they took think, DNA swabs from her body and sent it to the state crime lab and it didn't match with Doug. Oh, okay. Okay. That's not in this particular article, but it could be in another one. So, yeah. Um, so, Birch was arrested and charged with Vander Hayden's murder. Um, also, uh, um, another thing was they found a wire, and this was another reason that Doug was ruled out. Um, when they were, police were inspecting this, both the site where the body was dumped and then the home of Doug Dietrich, they found a wire on this. A neighbor found a wire while mowing his lawn and thinking that it was animal blood on it because it had blood on it. It was like a phone wire or something like that. And he threw hmm. the wire on the side of the road and forgot to pick it back up. He thought it was animal blood, so he didn't report it to the authorities, but they later found it. And after the neighbor found out about Nikki dying, he contacted the police who came to retrieve the wire and they took samples of the blood that was on the wire. It turned out to be Nikki's and then it also had some DNA of an unknown male on it, which was not Doug. So this is how the blood then got outside of it, outside of their home was because from the, it was on this wire. Yeah, on, some on the wire and, and other places. Okay. So Nicole, it seems like, was murdered in her own neighborhood. And part of the other reason that they absolved Doug from this crime was, like Sarah was saying earlier, Doug was wearing a Fitbit. And when they pulled the data from his Fitbit, it showed that he was sleeping when she was being murdered. So I don't know a lot about a Fitbit. I don't have, I use um, like an Apple watch, but I know a Fitbit has an accelerometer and an accelerometer is a little tiny sensor that basically measures acceleration. So it measures if you are sitting up, it measures if you're walking, it measures if you're running, it measures if you are laying down. So his Fitbit showed that he was laying down for an extended period of time when they believed that Nicole was murdered. I'm not sure if his Fitbit had GPS on them, but I think some of them do. And that would have also showed that he was yeah. at his house. And my understanding is they don't record if it's not being worn. So it's not as if he could have taken it off and just left it at the house to go do this, right? What if he put it on the baby? What if he put it on the baby? It would have showed a different heartbeat. It's interesting because I believe that this is the first case in criminal history where they actually use data from a fit. Yeah. In a conviction. It would have showed the like the heart rate consistent with a six month old, which is um, considerably higher than the heart rate of a 35 year old male, like the resting heart rate, especially at night. The resting heart rate of an adult male is pretty low. And I do not believe they use this as the sole evidence in the case because I do not believe they would be able to use something like that as the sole evidence to either convict or rule somebody out in a case like this. It would have to be in conjunction with other facts. Right. Well, and it wasn't it's just too it was used just too by, many elements involved in it. It was used by the prosecution, right? Because they charged George Birch. So George Birch's defense was that he was having he picked up Nicole. Wait, somewhere. This is is insane. What? (laughs) This is so insane. Yeah. So his defense is that he picked up Nicole, presumably somewhere on her walk or maybe at a bar, another bar or something, right? His defense is that he picked her up 
they were going to have sex. And she said, come back to my house. So they were having sex in the driveway. Doug allegedly came up behind this guy and hit him over the head and knocked him out. So he was unconscious as he was pumping, having sex with Nicole. Oh, I standing up because he couldn't do it in the car because he said he was too big. And she was in the car and they were having sex with him outside and her in that Doug Mm -hmm. came up behind him, knocked him out, incapacitated him. And then when he came to Doug was going to kill Nicole at that point. Yeah, because that's how things work. (laughs) Naturally. So that explains why his DNA was there, right, mixed with the blood. That explains why his cell phone showed that he was at the house. So, like, basically they're covering all their bases. And that explains why there was evidence that she had recently had sex. So their defense is covering all of their bases, except for the fact that it doesn't make any fucking sense. They forgot to cover that part. That's a big thing that when you you want to... pose a successful defense at a trial is you want it to actually make sense. So George also claimed that Doug, that Doug forced him to get rid of Nicole's body, which explains why his cell phone was in that field. So supposedly Doug drove Nikki and George around in his truck for a while after the death, which, you know, God knows they can't prove, he can't prove any of Mm -hmm. that. And then made him do all the dirty right. work. Naturally. And so the Fitbit information wasn't really even used in the trial in the defense. It was used by the prosecution to say what the defense is telling you that Doug had any involvement in this is bunk because we can t- show you with this data from Fitbit where Doug was and what he was right. doing. So. So he clearly didn't have anything to do with that. What's interesting as well is that she was found with nothing but her socks on. Like, who the fuck has sex in a car in a driveway outside and takes all their clothes off? Right. But except for their socks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a cold ass night because it's fucking Green Bay. Right. So, like, that that part doesn't make sense. And then George claims that he had the clothing and that he got scared and threw it out of his truck when he was escaping. That so he essentially helped get rid of the body. And then when Doug turned the other way and he had a chance to escape, he got into his own truck and drove off and threw the clothes out the window when he was on his way out of town. So Doug drove them around with Nicole's body to dump the body. and In George's vehicle. George, oh, okay. They drove around in George's car. Correct. Gotcha. It's all coming together now. The Doug came out of the house and was like, what the fuck is going on here? Hits the guy over the head, puts all of them in the car, kills Nikki, and drives him around in George's car at gunpoint. Why? I don't know. I mean, just... So... No one, no one does that shit. Nobody does that shit. So, it won't come as a surprise that George... Birch was found guilty of first-degree intentional homicide. And in Wisconsin, that comes with a mandatory life sentence. And so instead of a sentencing hearing, two months later, a judge basically decided whether or not he would be granted the chance for parole at, at any point in his life sentence. So at the victim impact statement, Steve Meyer, which is Nicole's dad, told George, there is no place in society for an animal like you. Nicole's mom, 
said, her name was Vicky, said that we are just shells of people, of the people we were. And Doug, in his statement, which he didn't read, he had his read, his statement said, George Birch is a monster and should rot in prison for the rest of his life. I asked the court to give Birch the same amount of mercy he showed Nikki. None. And the judge, at the end of all of this, said rhetorically, what if this was a death penalty state? Would this be the kind of case, given the set of facts, that would justify the death penalty? The answer is yes. And for that, Mr. Birch, you have to die in prison. So he sentenced George Birch to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And he added, she was already dead or dying. (laughs) And Mr. Birch either stomped on her head or kicked her. How angry do you have to be to do that to somebody? So that's the zigzag pattern on her. Uh huh. That he kicked, kicked, and that was his shoe tread. Exactly, the bottom um, of his. Let's boot also or something. keep in mind that this dude was six seven and weighed two hundred and seventy pounds. Jesus. So number one, how the fuck could Doug Dietrich overpower you if you're six seven and two hundred and seventy pounds? Right. Right. Doug Dietrich controls you and overpowers you, and you're scared of him. And number two. Why the fuck would you take off? He, so he says he found a way to escape when Doug had his back turned, got in his truck and drove off and threw the clothes out the window and then went on a fishing trip. Never contacted the police, never called right. 911 and basically said, where I come from, we don't snitch. And that was his reason for not calling the police. Interesting that you say that last part because this actually isn't the first murder charge that George has faced. In 1998... Hmm. He was charged with murder, but a jury found him not guilty of a gang-related shooting. And at the time of the murder of Nicole, like we said earlier, he was wanted for hit-and-run charges. So he is now doing life without in the state of Wisconsin. He continues to claim that he was simply caught up in the couple's argument. And obviously, um, and I thought this was a national law, but the judge also ruled that he cannot profit from any book or film about the case, which I thought the Son of Sam law was a national thing. But I guess maybe every state has their own version or whatever. I think it's state by state. Okay. Birch also had some burglary charges. I mean, clearly this guy was a career career criminal as far as what I could see. Right. So they believe that she was strangled with an electrical cord. I think that was the wire that you were talking about. Is that right? The one that they found in the neighbor's yard. Yeah, I essentially think that what happened was he met her, he started hitting on her, and she was like, hey, fuck off. Or maybe she was interested and and pissed because Doug had neglected her and rejected her, but then, you know, got back to her house. He offered her a ride or something, and she was like, okay, I I need to go inside now. i got to take care of my baby. And he was pissed that she said no. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what the prosecutors theorized as well. That he was pissed that he wasn't going to be allowed to have sex with her or that she had rejected him or something of that nature and just killed her. Yeah. Because he was pissed. Yeah. That sounds about right. I mean, I'm not even sure. He claims that he met her at a bar. I'm not sure. Unless she went to another bar after walking away from her friends. To me, it kind of sounds like he left that same bar that they were all at and followed her in his truck and then maybe picked her up. Because I, I yeah. agree, it probably sounds, clearly, it sounds, you know, believable that he offered her a ride home, and that's why this happened in her own neighborhood. But I, it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like any of the friends recognized him from the bar or anything like that. I, I kind of feel like he maybe no, followed her. but he claims, he claims that he met her at the bar, mm-hmm. and they, that he drove her home, and they had sex in, the, in his car, mm-hmm. which was a Chevy Blazer, 
um, which just happened to have been torched not long after this event happened oh, really? and crushed, so it couldn't be inspected. Hmm, interesting. And that Doug came upon him and, and Nikki having sex and got pissed off and snapped and hit this guy over the head, rendering him unconscious, and then proceeded to kill his girlfriend on the street by the neighbor's home because he was so pissed at her. Yeah. He says that when he came to, Doug was standing over him and ordered him at gunpoint to go dump the body at a specific site in his own truck. So then he says once he was finished, he managed to push Dietrich out of the way when he was distracted and left in his truck without any problems. This all happened supposedly in about four minutes. And Dietrich still had a gun supposedly when he was able to get away. Yeah. And that he had to walk back home with his gun while baby Dylan was allegedly left yeah. at home. No. That was his story. No. I mean, come the fuck on. Like, to me, this is the, like, literally one of the most unbelievable stories that I've ever heard in my entire life. And he must have been sitting in jail, like, stewing on this. Yeah. Trying to think of the most crazy way he could get out of yeah. this. I mean, and he nailed it. That's to me crazy. That he thought that made sense. That, that, that any of that made sense. Yeah. It's like he was like, okay, here's the evidence they have against me. How can I make all of that fit into a story that still doesn't make it sound like I killed her? Yeah. And that's the best he came up with. And the guy, and basically this dude has no marks on him, no, (laughs) nothing on his head to indicate he would have been hit. Right. And he basically went on a fishing trip the next day. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's it's insane. This is one of the the few cases where she actually did leave after a fight, and he did not, and Doug did not kill his girlfriend. Yeah, one of the very mm-hmm. few. But it's also interesting that he destroyed his trucks right after. I mean, this guy just basically did everything in the book to make himself look guilty AF. Yeah, exactly. So basically, no bump, no redness or injuries. He had very short hair at the time of this murder, so anyone would be able to see if he'd been hit in the head. Like he suggested Doug had done to him. Yeah. And he might have also had injuries on his hands, but because his work entitled that he was often scratched or bruised, they may not have been remembered. But somebody definitely would have seen the head injury. Yeah, for sure. So it looks like it sounds very reasonable that Nikki fought off her attacker while he was doing all this and managed to get out of the SUV and ran into the road where this gentleman sentenced, silenced her with a wire cord around her oh, neck. Wow. And she bled on the side of the street because they found blood on the street outside of the home. Yeah, and we know she felt she carried, fought because she had broken fingernails yeah. and bruises on her hands Bruise and all over. Ri- feet and wrists. And those are all consistent with defensive type injuries. So, yeah. So I think she got away and then he carried her back to the blazer, mm-hmm. which left blood on the road and on the cord. He used to strangle her as well as traces of his own DNA mm-hmm. in his haste to get the fuck out of there. Yeah, it's really funny. The jury, I guess, afterwards was like in disbelief that this former quarterback and felon able to confront dangerous situations would not have fought back or tried to push Dietrich, who was much smaller and weaker. Right. So they just had a very hard time believing his shady as fuck story. Like I just, I just imagine like that jury thinking, "What the fuck? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Be, ser- right. be serious, guy. He's six seven, two hundred and seventy pounds, yeah. and he's like, oh, this little dude overpowered me.' No. 
anyway. So clearly, um, what was this guy's name? George. George. Clearly fucking George came across her as she left the bar and she was alone and she was vulnerable and she was drunk and he took advantage of her and offered her a ride home. And when he solicited her for sex and she turned him down, he got pissed off and was like, I'm not letting you get away with this. We're having sex. And then she started to fight him and he raped her. Yeah. Just a very, very sad situation, which I don't think needed to happen. If that group would have stayed together, none of that would have yeah. happened. And I'm sure they still, they feel bad about it to this very day. I mean, yeah, how could you not? It's it's one of those things you don't expect to happen. And it, then if something, you know, when something bad does happen, you think of all the things you could have done differently. But it just... Yeah. Well, and... In this case as well was interesting with the use of the Fitbit. So it kind of sets it apart from other cases mm-hmm. because they actually used a Fitbit in the defense and to, to um, provide enough reasonable doubt to get somebody off the hook, to rule them out as a potential suspect. So I found that to be very yeah. interesting as well. You don't hear stuff like that very often. No, and it's, a, I mean, it's a really good marketing case for wearing fitness monitors. You know, absolutely. Where are your fucking Fitbit? Um, I have some emails. Let's let's do okay. some emails. One says, "Good work, guys. We are really enjoying your podcast so far. We would love to hear our email read on your show. Here are some things we would love to hear more about. Number one, how did you come up with the name for your podcast? Oh, well, that wasn't really Darcy at all. Nope, because <laughs> I kind of had the had the podcast before she jumped in." I just was looking for a unique name for the podcast. There are so many like true crime related titles and podcasts that I felt like that was already saturated to a certain degree. And I liked the bizarre and fascinating detail angle as well, because you could shorten it up and have it be the BFD, like big fucking deal. Mm-hmm. So to me, that just kind of s- s- sealed the deal. Yeah. Um, And then Darcy just kind of went along with it. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, all right, whatever. (laughs) I think it's just unique. It's, there's not, you know, it sets it apart from other podcasts. And it doesn't constrain us to, I mean, the majority of our stuff is true crime, but it doesn't constrain us to true crime either, or talking about the same old true crime stories in the same way. We don't have to just tell a story that, that you all have heard before a million times. We get to talk about it in different ways of, you know, Sarah has a law degree. I'm doing a PhD in biomechanics. So we can talk about the things from our areas of expertise and it brings kind of a different angle to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, and we can talk about all the crazy, bizarre shit. Um, question number two, how long have you guys been doing this? Um, I started this podcast at the beginning of the year and Darcy, when did you jump in? Like in March or February? I think it was in February. I pulled her initially in for a guest spot on an episode or two and really liked the way she was doing her research and it just seemed like it was an ideal fit. And I think initially when I created this podcast, my idea was to have Darcy with me because we had always talked about true crime and when we had first started listening to My Favorite Murder, we both kind of hit upon that at the same time and we're like, oh my God, this is us. Yeah. And so after that, I was like, well, now I have to fucking do this. So definitely about a year and we kind of um, were inspired a little bit by that particular podcast, My Favorite Murder, just because it was sort of a a humorous angle, but yet they were still talking about murder. And I have 
always been fascinated with murder. I was looking up serial killer cases and murder cases at work from an, and on the internet for as long as I can remember. What yeah. about you, Darcy? The same, kind of the same. And then, I mean, when we would go to volleyball, like we would always talk about, oh, did you see this thing on Investigation Discovery? Or look, like I just finished this book and like all of this stuff. Like we would always talk about true crime and serial killers and stuff when we were together. And then it was like podcasts started becoming a big thing and we always talked about doing it. And then, of course, I moved away and, it, you know, now we have the ability to record into different locations and, you know, it's we have good audio and everything now. So it's coming together. But um, I'm really glad Sarah asked me to be part of it because it's a lot of fun. I wasn't sure if I was going to have time to do it being in school, but, but she's fucking making time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am because I love doing it. So, you know. Um, favorite case, it says. Ooh. Um, I have to say the Oakland, Ch- Oakland County child killer is mine. Yes, I knew you were going to yeah. say that. Why? It's the first one I remember being shocked by because I very specifically remember, like, I, th- I think it was a 2020 thing or maybe a dateline. And they talked about when the last boy was taken while well, he was still missing. His the police told his parents to go on, you know, do a press conference and talk to the person as if they were, you know, a babysitter. Like, basically try, like, make the person feel like they need the, to take care of the boy as if they were her, his own parents, you know? And so the mom says, I believe it was the mom, she says, you know, we would just, we want him home. I believe Tim King is the last victim. They said, you know, we want him home for Sunday so he can have his favorite Sunday dinner, which is fried chicken. And they found him not too long after that, and his last meal was fried chicken. And he had been murdered shortly after eating that. So that was done very intentionally to make police aware that this person was watching the news and was following the case and things like that and was so sadistic that they would do that intentionally. And I remember that being the most shocking thing that I had ever heard at that time. And that was always one. So I've always followed it. I read books about it. I listen to podcasts. I watch as much stuff as I can about it because I, I think to me, I hope that that's the next big one that's solved with genetic genealogy, you know? Yeah. Well, I've always been interested in a kind of a combo, the John Bonet case, mm. just because it's not solved. And it was with this little girl and it was huge splash. And then the headlines. Yeah, it was everywhere. Ted Bundy. Because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and I went through Rush at Chi Omega, which is the sorority that he supposedly killed those girls at in, mm-hmm. Flor- in Florida. Um, and then not the supposedly Green River Killer, he did kill the, He did. Yes. Yeah. The girls at the Florida sorority, yeah. obviously, that he killed. Um, and then the Green River Killer, because again, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and that was something that was huge as kids that we were always told to be careful because if you're not good, the Green River Killer Gosh. will come get you. Um, and then finally, Albert Fish. Mm. For some reason to me, that was literally one of the most frightening, freaky, like crazy cases with all the needles they found that he had put into his genital area and just fucking weird. Yeah. Just drew me in like a fucking magnet. And I was like, I've got to do true crime. I've got to have some, some kind of a career or something that, that deals with true crime because it's way too interesting. Albert Fish um, is too much for me. I also want to add to mine. I also want to add BTK because I remember... 
I remember watching the press conference when he was arrested in 2005, and that was the first time mm-hmm. I had heard of BTK or even in my lifetime really heard of a serial killer being arrested. Yeah. So I think that was one of the more interesting ones to me, too, just because I have that memory yeah. of him being arrested and watching his trial. And when he his confession is one of the most upsetting things I think you can watch. What are your backgrounds? Well, we just mentioned I have a legal background. I have a law degree and I'm licensed to practice law in the state of Washington. Um, I've been in the legal field for 20 some odd years, mostly corporate law, family law, Um, done a lot of writing, blogging and so forth. And then kind of was always interested in true crime and started this podcast about a year ago. Darcy, what about you? What's your background? So I'm doing a PhD in biomechanics and traditionally that's just the study of human movement um but i want to what i want to do is study blunt force trauma injuries and so i am in school right now to do a phd in a lab where we basically use like crash test dummies and we do a lot of helmet testing football helmet testing army helmet testing things like that um and i kind of use that to segue into studying cervical spine injuries due to blunt force trauma of the head and that's kind of what my dissertation work is is going to be on and then from there I would like to go do kind of some forensic biomechanics consulting or research and something like that and then um but prior to that I wasn't doing anything you know in in terms of this kind of stuff I was just I was just doing research with um like human performance background kind of stuff. That's actually how I met Sarah as I moved to San Diego. I was working with um, Naval Special Warfare for five years out there. But yeah, that's Navy about SEALs. It. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, any plan? Last question. Any plans for Patreon or merchandise? Yes and yes. Ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, we just talked we about just this actually, couple, and this is why I saved the email until now to read it because it came in a few weeks ago. Um, The rest of the email says, sorry to bombard you, but we love hearing about all the background stuff about our favorite podcast. We can't wait to hear more Chelsea and Wes. Thank you, Chelsea and Wes. Yes, we do have plans for Patreon and for merchandise. We had a conversation with this. We will probably come out with stickers, lapel pins, T-shirts, mugs, bags, things of that nature within the next koozies. Yes. And koozies for the next about the next six (laughs) months. We plan on rolling that stuff out. Um, and then our Patre- Patreon will probably start up in the fall. I've been aiming for the summer, but it just hasn't come together as much as I'd like to. And I've just been swamped with regular work type stuff where my full-time normal job. But yes and yes, we have plans for those things. I was going to read a couple emails on the show today, but it looks like we are running very late. So I'm going to just stick to yeah. the one and we'll add the other two in a later episode. But this is the point in the show where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Social media shout out, Darcy. We are at the BFD Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Please like, add us, follow us. We love interacting with you guys. Our yeah, question, more questions, comments, or suggestions. Our email is the BFD Podcast at gmail.com. Please send us an email if you want. And join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>